Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And today we have our honor to have our distinguished recurring guest, uh, Bishop Chandler Holder Jones, who is the presiding bishop of the Anglican province of America. Bishop Jones, it's good to see you. How are you? Thank you. I'm excellent. It's always a joy and a pleasure to be back with you on the Sacramentalist podcast. Things have been busy since the end of July when I became the diocesan bishop of the eastern U.S. and the presiding bishop of the province. And it's been a whirlwind experience of a blessing to travel the diocese and to spend time with our people in our various parishes. And it's a treat to be back with you today. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, it's always a pleasure. And we were lucky to be one of those parishes that you came and visited. It was wonderful. So today we are going to be talking about the issue of Zionism, or more particularly the relationship between the church and Israel. And at the outset, it's probably important for us to acknowledge that the way that Christians have talked about Israel in the past has not always been very good or respectful. Uh, even when those things were rooted in a context, they were often overly reactionary. And so while we might look to the early church theologically on these issues, uh, we should be careful about how we speak about these things, especially uh, in light of the long uh, history of anti-Semitism. So we'll be very careful with how we talk about it, but we do need to talk about it because this is certainly one of the tough issues where many different traditions have many different opinions. And so hopefully Bishop Chad will be on here to clarify all of it for us today. Well, thank you. As was said by a famous churchman of the 20th century, all Christians are spiritual Semites. And as that, we know that we are the descendants and we are mystically united to our Lord Jesus Christ in his mystical body. And the Lord Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so as we Christians look to salvation history and the story of redemption and salvation in ancient Israel, we must be mindful of the fact that we are in fact integrally related to God's ancient people, chosen people. Our Lord Jesus Christ was Jewish. The Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of God, was Jewish. The 12 apostles were Jewish. The majority of the earliest believers were Jewish. And so anti-Semitism is a grave evil. It is a mortal sin. And there has been, through the course of Christian history, great misunderstanding regarding the Jewish community. And there have been instances, many instances, of that grievous sin of anti-Semitism. So what we speak about today is a theological issue of the relationship between the Lord Jesus and his own people, the Jewish people in the Old Covenant, and the fulfillment that we find in the church, which is the mystical body of Christ. And none of what we are going to say should we ever think of any kind of disparagement of the Jewish people. We are called, as St. Augustine says, to love the Jewish people, and by doing so, to draw them into the love of Jesus Christ. It's often said that because of the position of St. Augustine in the fourth century, that Judaism as a cultural phenomenon and a religious system persisted and survived, because St. Augustine clearly said, it is the duty incumbent upon the Christian to love his Jewish neighbor. And so we do, and we are commanded to by Christ himself. So we don't want to give any misapprehension about the historical Orthodox Christian position on the Jewish faith or Jewish people. 
for they are held in the highest regard and esteemed, and we love them. And it is out of love that we speak truth today. St. Paul says that we must speak the truth in love, in charity for our neighbor, for their welfare and their salvation. And that is the place from which we come when we speak about the matter of the church as the fulfillment of Israel. Thank you. That's great. So to begin our conversation today, it might be helpful to define a term that we're going to use uh, throughout our conversation, which is Zionism. So what do we mean when we talk about Zionism? Zionism is a multifaceted phenomenon. First of all, we can understand it as political Zionism, and this is a movement for the restoration of a Jewish state. There was a well-known advocate of this political movement in the late 19th century by the name of Theodore Herzl. And in 1896, he published his first major work on the question of the restoration of a physical nation for the Jewish people, a Jewish state in a particular geographical region. And that region, of course, was understood to be Palestine. The desire was to restore the Jewish people, to an ethnic homeland in the Middle East. So that is political Zionism, which ultimately culminated in 1948 in the creation of the State of Israel, which is a Jewish state. And as we know, there is a right of return now for all persons who profess Jewish faith and are of Jewish heritage and lineage of ethnicity, in which they can return now to the Jewish State of Israel, which is positioned in the Levant, in the Middle East. That's one form of Zionism, but there is another, and that would be religious Zionism, which links the restoration of a Jewish homeland, a Jewish state, to our Lord and his return at the end of the world. Uh, there are many forms of religious Zionism. The one that captures our attention and interest most immediately in Western society and in the United States would be Christian Zionism which is a subset of religious Zionism. There are Jews who hold to a religious Zionism, that God is bringing his people back together in a physical land, land that was promised to Abraham and his descendants. But then there is a Christian Zionism, which sees the return of the Jewish people to the geographical region of Palestine as heralding the second coming of Christ. And that this is the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy and of many biblical prophecies, to bring about the eschaton, the parousia, the end of the world, the second coming of Christ. This is a, a particularly popular movement in evangelical Christianity in the 21st century, and many Christians in America of an evangelical and Protestant milieu maintain that there is an integral relationship between the restoration of a state of Israel, a Jewish state, in 1948, and the soon coming of Christ. So when we speak of Zionism, we have to distinguish what kind of Zionism of which we speak. Are we speaking of the solely or exclusively political version, which gave rise to the state of Israel in 1948? Or are we looking more at a religious view that harnesses the development of 1948 to biblical prophecy and the end of the world and Christ's general judgment and the general resurrection at the end of the world. It's helpful to make those distinctions. I think, you know, as, as Anglo-Catholics, uh, you know, I think most would reject a, a sort of religious Zionism. 
uh, not to speak on the question of a political reality, but uh, more from a theological standpoint. And the view is often uh, juxtaposed against what is called, you know, replacement theology or supersessionism. Do you think these are accurate terms to describe a more Catholic position? Thank you, Father. A wonderful question indeed. Supersessionism is often used as sort of a caricature, I think, of the Orthodox Catholic position regarding the ethnicity and the uh, existence of the Old Covenant. Perhaps it would be important first to point out that the religion today called Judaism is not continuous with the religion as practiced and revealed in the Old Testament. Scholars are very generally honest about that. There is, in fact, a rupture. The religion of the Old Testament was the sacrificial and sacramental system, which God instituted through Moses and ultimately through David and through the temple in, of, in Jerusalem built by Solomon. That religion of priesthood and sacrifice and ordinances, all commanded by God in the Pentateuch, came to an abrupt end in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And what replaced it is what we now call rabbinical Judaism, which is a religion based not on the temple, for the temple no longer exists. And it is no longer possible to offer the priestly sacrifices and oblations that existed in Jerusalem in the temple. Rather, the shul or the synagogue has taken the place of the old temple, and it is a religion now of the book, the study of Holy Scripture, meditation, reflection, and teaching based on the content of what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So there is a rupture between the sacramental and sacrificial worship and system and life of the Old Covenant and what is today called the uh, Biblicist, if you will, or rabbinical Judaism. Now, I think it's a mischaracterization to describe what the Orthodox and Catholic Church teaches as supersessionism, because it is deeper than that. It is, in fact, not replacement theology. It is fulfillment theology. This is how we need to understand the relationship between the Jewish faith and Orthodox Christian life and the Christian church. It is a fulfillment theology. So if I may, I'll, I'll offer a few phrases I've written through the years about what we mean by this. What is it that we are referring to when we talk about the church as the fulfillment of Israel. For example, the Lord Jesus in his epiphany shows the Gentiles, those races and nations originally outside the covenant, that they are now called to the fullness of divine life and salvation. Some contemporary Christians are tempted simply to think of our Lord as though he were himself a Gentile, but not so. It is as the Jewish Messiah that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Davidic Priest King, the fulfillment, completion, and personification of Israel, comes to the Gentiles and brings them into communion with God in the fellowship of the one church, the one body. Our Lord even undergoes circumcision more radically to open the Jewish people to receive his gospel of salvation. Since through the ancient ordinance, Christ is conformed to the Old Covenant in the pattern of its initiation. The Lord Jesus is the personification and the fulfillment of Israel. And then we look to the church. 
The church is fashioned by God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son in the Holy Spirit to be a living participation in the Holy Trinity as the extension of the incarnate life of Christ. The church is fulfilled in herself, in her own constitutive being, by sacraments, liturgies, rites, and structures, a visible and spiritual covenantal relationship, first established by God with his chosen people in the Old Testament. The Catholic Church is the new and true Israel of God, the spiritual and fulfilled Israel, united to God through Israel's Messiah and personification, Jesus of Nazareth. The word church means a convocation or assembly. It designates the assemblies of the people, usually for a religious purpose. Ecclesia is used frequently in the Greek Old Testament for the assembly of the chosen people before God, above all for their assembly on Mount Sinai, where Israel received the law and was established by God as his holy people. By calling itself the church, the first community of Christian believers recognized itself as the heir to that assembly. In the church, God is calling together his people from all the ends of the earth. The church is the people that God gathers in the whole world, and she exists in local communities and is made real as a liturgical and above all Eucharistic assembly. She draws her life from the word of God and the body of Christ in the Eucharist, and so becomes herself Christ's body. All men are called to this union with Christ. Thus the church has been seen as the people made one with the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church is Israel, called out from the world to be God's people. She also calls out all men to make them God's children and bring them into the life of divine sonship. So these are some of the ways in which we can understand the relationship between ancient Israel and the church. The Lord Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment, the personification, the manifestation of all that God intended when he established and called out his people in the Old Covenant. So now we see that found in Christ and the church. The proper Catholic interpretation of Scripture and of the nature of the church is to understand that the Eucharist and the Catholic priesthood are the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacramental and sacrificial system. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the unique embodiment, personification, and fulfillment of Israel and the Old Covenant. The Lord Jesus is, in his Eucharist and in his mystical body, the Church, the perfection, the accomplishment, the full manifestation of that to which all the old sacrifices and sacraments gave symbolism, sign, and foretaste. This is why we say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Ultimately, there can be only one church, and that one church was established by God in the Old Covenant. It is the church of Abraham and the patriarchs, and that one church then finds its fulfillment and completion in the person of Jesus Christ. So it is not anti-Semitic or any kind of negative judgment to say that there is a functional as well as an ontological fulfillment of all that God sought to achieve through the Old Covenant 
in Jesus Christ and his mystical body. The church now is the place in which all of the covenant of God resides and is fulfilled and is lived, enacted, energized, in which we live in the fullness of God's divine revelation and divine grace in the sacraments. So we're not talking about replacement. We're talking about continuity. Christ is the continuity of the old covenant, and the church now takes her place as that to which the old covenant pointed. There is a cessation, we could say, in the sense that all that God ordained and intended for the Jewish people in the old covenant has now reached its apogee, its climax, its fulfillment in Christ. Perfect. That's helpful because I think supersessionism and replacement theology often get tossed around pejoratively as sort of loaded labels. Um, and so this helps us, I think, get a more nuanced and robust understanding of what exactly the position is that we're coming from. It's helpful, I think, then to turn our gaze to the New Testament where uh, certain passages are raised that either support or seem to raise into question uh, what it is that you just described as far as the Catholic position. So we can start, I think, in Matthew's gospel. The Pauline epistle, epistles are the other place that we'll need to go. But let's start in Matthew, um, specifically in chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, where our Lord says, Think not that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. So many people who argue for a theological Zionism will point to a verse like this and say that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, so why would we think that Old Testament Israel and the promises that were made to them are now given to the church? Well, it's a fantastic question. And we see in the Lord Jesus when he says all of this that he is the new Moses. He is the new lawgiver. He is the Messiah. And as such, he embodies the law himself. The classic Christian understanding of what our Lord is saying here is that he has not destroyed the law, but he came to fulfill it. All 613 commandments of the Old Testament meet their fulfillment in Christ, who perfectly keeps the spirit and the meaning of the law. We think of the epistle, which echoes what our Lord is saying in that passage from the first Sunday in Advent in Romans chapter 13, where St. Paul writes, O no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law because he gives us his Holy Spirit so that incorporated into him, living in him as true members by virtue of holy baptism, infused with the Holy Spirit, infused with the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, we are able ourselves to keep the law, the meaning of the law, that is to live in faith, hope, and love. Oh, no man anything but to love one another, for love is the fulfilling of the law. And St. Paul goes on to say in, in Romans chapter 13 that all of the commandments of God revealed by God to Moses on Mount Sinai are briefly comprehended in this saying, love thy neighbor as thyself. So Christ himself now is the fulfillment of the law 
and gives to those who are organically united to him the grace of the Holy Spirit to keep the law, to keep the meaning of the law. Christians always understand that we are still bound to the moral law. We are not bound to the ceremonial law because the, cere the ceremonial law cannot justify. The whole raison d'etre of the New Testament corpus and particularly of the Pauline corpus, the writings of St. Paul, is that the Old Testament ceremonial law cannot justify us before God. We read in Romans that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What does St. Paul mean there? And he's talking about our Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus says, I have not come to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle of the law shall in any wise depart. What St. Paul is saying, interpreting the words of Christ, because he is Christ's apostle, very plainly, is that the Old Testament ceremonial system does not have the power to save. What does have the power to save is justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, because he fulfilled the law for our sake. He was crucified to end the enmity between Jew and Gentile and to nail, as it were, the ceremonial law to the cross so that we are no longer bound to the ceremonial law, but we are bound to the moral law which was fulfilled in Christ and is fulfilled in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is what our Lord is prophesying when he talks about the fulfillment of the law not one jot or one tittle of the law departs because all of it now is briefly summarized in the summary of the law. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Christ now makes the law harder. It's more difficult, more difficult than observing those 613 ceremonial commandments. Now it is about the heart the circumcision of the heart, as St. Paul describes it. We are circumcised in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Christ has taken it from the plane of outward ceremonial and observance now into the interior being, where the meaning, the spirit, the purpose of the law is revealed through Christ and is now implanted in us by grace, and we are to live that out. That is why Orthodox Christianity is not this hyper-grace that you often encounter today in, in evangelical circles. It's not antinomianism. We are not lawless. There is a law. It is the law of the spirit of life. It is the law of liberty, which is the law of love. And this is why St. James, commenting also on the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, says, faith without works is dead. What does he mean by works? There he means the works of charity, the works of love, the corporal and the spiritual works of mercy, which arise from the soul, which has been regenerated in Christ. Paul and James don't disagree. Paul says that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. James says faith without works are dead. They mean exactly the same thing. And that comes together in Galatians chapter 3, where it says we are justified by faith working in love. Christ is saying to us that he takes the Old Testament ceremonial system 
and he is crucified. And in that crucifixion, in that death on the cross, all of that is completed. But the meaning of the law, the jot and the tittle of the law, are now in the moral life, the life of the Spirit, in which the Christian believer, regenerated by the Holy Spirit in baptism, is now ennobled to live the purpose and the meaning of the law. We cannot be justified or saved through observing the outward ceremonial signs of the Old Testament. Now we are justified by grace, which is infused into us by Christ and his sacraments. In the Old Testament, the sacraments were many, and they were weak, and they were symbolic. In the New Testament, the sacraments are few, infused with supernatural grace and power to the salvation, the justification, the sanctification of the soul. Christ is the bridge who takes all that God revealed in sign and symbol, in foretaste and type in the Old Covenant, and now moves it into the new life of grace in Christ, which is now the antitype, the fulfillment, the completion, the manifestation. Our Lord speaks of himself as the fulfillment of the law. And we who are implanted into Christ now live by the Holy Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. And that is what our Lord is talking about when he speaks about the fulfillment, the accomplishment of the law. Thank you, Bishop. That's, I, I think, a really helpful way to approach that particular uh, passage. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, the Pauline corpus as well. So that kind of takes us into the to the next uh, sort of piece of uh, uh, of sort of perplexing textual evidence um, in Romans eleven twenty six. Uh, there's a lot going on contextually in nine through eleven, and in nine. St. Paul seems to indicate that ethnic Israel is not the children of God by virtue of their biological genealogy. He says, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Yet in chapter 11, St. Paul begins describing a tree which seems to symbolize the church, and he discusses the cutting off of the Jewish branches so that the Gentile branches can be grafted on. Yet in the midst of this, St. Paul seems to hold out hope. He says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So the question here is sort of twofold. Uh, one, what should we understand by all Israel will be saved in the context? And two, what is our takeaway from the passage in relation to the nation of Israel more broadly? Fantastic questions. Thank you, Father, very much indeed. Well, to be very blunt about it, Romans 11.26 means the Jewish people are going to convert to Christ. That is what it means. It is not about a recognition of a plan A versus a plan B. This is an ideal time to speak just for a moment about the related error to Christian Zionism called dispensationalism. I'd like to speak to that for just a moment, and then I'll come back and talk about Romans 9 to 11, which needs explanation. What is St. Paul saying, and what is the nature of the church? So I want to get into that, but let me please express a little bit 
of theological commentary about the problem of dispensationalism, which is rife and widespread in evangelical Christianity in North America, and why this is an error of theology, and why we need to be very careful and look at the patristic consensus of the church when we understand the nature of the church. Due to the amazing popularity of books like the Left Behind series and movies, the Omega Code and others, there is the doctrine of the rapture, which is only one element in the entire theological system called dispensationalism. Again, dispensationalism is not Christian Zionism. They are distinct, but they are related. Dispensationalism has made profound inroads into virtually every Christian community in North America, even including Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism. Now, the rapture is, in fact, a heresy. It's a direct and unmitigated denial of the eschatological teaching of the Creed of Nicaea Constantinople and the New Testament itself. The rapture is found nowhere in the text of the New Testament, but is contrived through proof texting, the isolation and use of particular passages or pericopes of the Bible, apart from their original context. The rapture is the doctrine that there is in salvation history a third secret coming of our Lord, in between his first and second advents, in which he will mystically resurrect and remove the elect, the true believers from the earth in advance of a coming Antichrist and final judgment. The rapture doctrine is a contortion of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, which taken together clearly teach that there is only one final coming, or advent of our Lord, at the end of time, the day of judgment, on which the general resurrection will take place. The second and final advent is explicitly taught by our Lord in St. John chapter 5 and St. John chapter 10. The rapture doctrine was invented in the 19th century by a Scottish evangelical mystic, a girl named MacDonald, who claimed to see visions of a rapture for God's special believers before the general resurrection. It first entered evangelicalism in America and Britain through two different sects, the Plymouth Brethren and the so-called Catholic Apostolic Church, otherwise known as the Irvingites. The rapture doctrine was unknown to the apostles, the church fathers, the undivided church, and the magisterial reformers of the 16th century. It is a complete theological novum, first introduced into several small evangelical sects 150 years ago. From such humble beginnings, it spread like wildfire in the 20th century, thanks to television, and the Schofield Reference Bible now is a hallmark of this rather strange system. Rapturous belief is based on the idea of the removal of the church, which is a true invisible church, from the earth before the final judgment. And this is a dispensationalist error, which holds that the Christian church is God's plan B for salvation. And this is where we will come back into Romans 9 to 11. The church is not God's plan B. Dispensationalism holds that it is a body totally unrelated to and disconnected from ethnic Israel, the Israel of the flesh and of the Old Covenant. And the church is thus only a body for Gentiles alone, which must be removed from the earth or gotten out of the way so that God's original plan of salvation 
can finally be accomplished as he originally intended for the Jewish people. In dispensationalism, there are two separate peoples of God, two churches with two completely different plans and means of salvation, Israel and the church. So in the dispensationalist view, Christ failed in his original intent to create an earthly kingdom for the Jewish people and wound up with the spiritualized church instead. The rapture doctrine makes it possible for Christ, as it were, to correct the situation. According to dispensationalist teaching, Christ will return to set up a literal earthly Jewish kingdom for 1,000 calendar years, based in a new third Jewish millennial temple in Jerusalem, in which he will preside over the restoration of animal blood sacrifice and the recreation of the old Jewish priesthood. Not only does this blatantly reject the whole teaching of St. Paul and his epistles, and that of the epistle to the Hebrews in particular, especially Hebrews chapter 5, but it also embraces an error called Kiliasm, condemned by the Fifth Ecumenical Council of Constantinople II in A.D. 553. That is a belief in a literal 1,000-year earthly reign of Christ before the end of time. In biblical numerology, the millennial kingdom, the 1,000 years, that all refers to the church age, to the reign of Christ in his mystical and militant body, the Catholic Church. So this is related, so I want to take that understanding in dispensationalism of two churches and talk about what St. Paul means in Romans 9 to 11 about one church. For there is only one continuous church which God established beginning with Abraham and which is completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the passages 9 to 11, those chapters in St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, stand apart as really almost a contained whole which are different in their explications from the rest of the letter. If we read the rest of Romans, we hear about justification, we hear about sanctification, we read about the plan of salvation from Christ for us. But 9 to 11 really delve into the question of predestination and free will and have had a great impact on Christian history, particularly in the West. Now, there are two points that are clearly established by St. Paul in Romans 9 to 11, that clearly there is not a discussion here about the destiny of individual people, but the destiny of the Jewish nation, and that the problem which he himself has to solve theologically in his teaching as he proposes this to the church is that there can be only one true church, the church of Abraham and the patriarchs, from which the greater part of ethnic Israel in the ethnological sense of the term, has now apostatized in virtue of its rejection of the Jewish Messiah. The question is raised here, how does God deal with this state of things when he has made his promises to Abraham? And what St. Paul will do here then is seek to answer that question. How does God deal with this in light of, in consideration of, the promises that God has made to Abraham? And so St. Saint, Saint Paul launches upon this and says that there is a consequence to what has happened here by the rejection 
of the Jewish people of the Messiah. Some would like to say that Romans 9 to 11 is not about eternal destiny or eternal catastrophe or ruin for Jewish people, but actually is about the loss of participating in the fullness of grace in the church alongside the Gentiles in this life. It is interesting that St. Paul writes, I wish that I could myself make myself anathema from Christ for the sake of the Jewish people, for the sake of my brethren. So he takes this very seriously. He seems to indicate very much that, that there is a reality here now in which people who reject Christ are outside the church. For otherwise, St. Paul would not write that way. He is saying that those who have rejected the Messiah, in some measure, in some way, have placed themselves outside the church of Abraham and the patriarchs because of disbelief in the Messiah. He indicates that those who are outside the church will be the subject of God's wrath, which will break upon them at the last judgment. All of this seems rather bleak. So he continues to write about this as he goes through 9 to 11. He says that we probably, therefore, must understand that he is writing and understanding that his own countrymen are going to meet a similar fate to those sinners of the Gentiles. However, he moves on to say, finally, in chapter 11, as he thinks out loud, writing about all of this, that there is going to be an optimistic outcome. The pessimism of which he writes in chapters 9 and 10 gives way to a greater optimism at the end where he says, ultimately, all Israel shall be saved. So how do we get to that point? What is he really saying here? As we go along Romans 9 to 11, he uses the following exhortation and the following analogy based on Zechariah 4 to describe how this is all going to work out. He says uh, regarding the tree that there is a Jewish national understanding and a Catholic or universal understanding. The good is that which is cultivated, and it is the good olive tree. This is the one church of God which continuously exists through all of the centuries, and it is God's chosen people, the ecclesia, the called out ones. This is the one church in which God calls people from the nations to join him. The root of this is the Jewish patriarchs. The Jewish patriarchs are the root of this one good olive tree, which is the church of God. The fatness or the sap, which wells up from the root, would be the work and the teaching and the revelation and the merits of the patriarchs and the holiness, which was given to the patriarchs and to their descendants. The branches which are broken off are those Jews who have broken off from the church because they have rejected the essence of the church, the heart of the church, which is Jesus Christ. And the wild olive branches, which are grafted onto the branch now, onto the tree, are those Gentiles who have been incorporated into the ecclesia, the called out ones, by baptism. So St. Paul writes as though the Jewish fathers were the source of the ecclesia, and they are. There's a continuity here. When we finally get to the end of this description, what we finally discover 
that all of this has been foretold, all of this has been foreseen, so that the disbelief of the Jews leads to the conversion of the Gentiles. And then the reconversion of the Jews will take place at the eschaton, and all will be well in the end. If you look at the book of Revelation, the 144,000, what does that represent? That is the fullness of God's chosen people from the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs, and of course from the 12 apostles as well. 144,000 is not a literal number. It is the number of God's chosen and elect in Christ, all who have been brought into Christ by baptism, both Jew and Gentile. All Israel shall be saved is that the fullness of the church, all people called to salvation through baptism, both Jewish and Gentile, will be incorporated into the one body. And that one body is open to Jew and Gentile, but they must move to the same source and the same root and the same essence, which is Christ. So we do have an optimistic view of the destiny of the Jewish people, but it, it, it requires their incorporation into Christ. The Lord Jesus is ultimately the source of salvation, the source of ecclesiality for the Jew and the Greek. So from a Catholic perspective, um, what is the relationship then to kind of summarize all the data that we've been going through? Because there is a lot of data. What is the relationship between Old Testament Israel, the church, and modern national Israel as we currently think of them? So um, I think we can probably piece together based on what you've said what that relationship is. But how would you kind of uh, do an elevator pitch for explaining how those three th entities are connected. Fantastic. Well, the Old Testament was completed in Christ. So everything that existed in terms of the rights of the old law and even the moral theology of the old law is fulfilled in Christ. The reason why Israel was created in the first place was Jesus Christ. The people of God in the old covenant, covenant the chosen people were called out from the world and established so that through them and in the seed of Abraham and David and all the patriarchs would come the Lord Jesus, whose advent now signals the completion and the accomplishment of that for which ethnic national Israel was created. And in the person of Jesus Christ now, all that God intended to bring about in the world for the salvation of man is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is Israel. The church is the spiritual Israel. Galatians chapter 6, peace be upon the Israel of God. The church is the true and spiritual Israel. It is the new people of God. It is the ecclesia, the called out ones, who take the promises of Abraham now and fulfill them and bring all the nations into Christ, hence a Catholic church. The old covenant was ethnic, particular, and local. The new covenant is universal for all people, for all times, for all places, delivering the fullness of the faith, the faith once delivered unto the saints, it is Catholic. Kataholon, according to the whole. So what God prepared in ancient ethnic Israel, he opens wide now in the Catholic and apostolic church for every human being. The promises that God gave to Abraham through Christ now are extended to the whole of mankind. And this fulfills the promise of God to Abraham when he said that your descendants shall be as the sand of the seashore 
and the stars in the heaven. Now all people are opened into the covenant of Abraham through Jesus Christ. What this means for Orthodox and Catholic Christians today in our contemporary age is that our relationship to ethnic Israel, to the Jewish state of Israel, founded in 1948, and to all Jewish people, should be a position of love, of charity, benevolence, and goodwill. And we should seek the salvation and the welfare of Jewish people as we pray for them and we pray for their conversion. This is why, very controversially, at least from the 20th century forward, we pray for the conversion of Jewish people in the Good Friday liturgy. And there are specific prayers in the liturgy of the Missal and in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer and a, a, a watered-down version in the 1928 prayer book in America, which pray for the conversion of those who do not yet know Christ as Lord and have not yet been incorporated into the church. God's eschatological vision is that both Jew and Gentile will be brought into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, who alone is the source of salvation. There is no plan B. There are no two churches, one for Jew and one, one for Gentile. There's only one church. And our church, the Catholic and Apostolic Church, is the church of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the church of the 12 patriarchs. It is the church of David and Solomon. It is the church of all the promises and covenants that God made with ethnic Israel in the Old Covenant. And as such, we sh should position ourselves to be open and receptive to Jewish people and to be willing to preach the gospel to them. Our Lord Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. That's an ontological statement. It's a statement of ontological fact. Christ is God and man. He is the second person of the Blessed Trinity incarnate, and it is through him alone, the unique bridge between God and man, that mankind has access to God. And so Christ, in his mystical body, the Church, opens this unique way of salvation to all people, and we should take a position of absolute charity, of mutual love for our Jewish friends and neighbors, and pray for them, trusting in the promises of God and in that beautiful, optimistic prophecy of St. Paul that in the fullness of time, there will be an opportunity for Jewish people to be baptized and received into the Catholic and Apostolic Church, which is now the mystical body of Christ and is the true Israel. Again, this is not replacement theology, fulfillment theology. But there's no room in God's eschatological vision for any discrimination or mistreatment of people on the basis of their faith, of their ethnicity, of their cultural origin. It is our unique, our distinctive place to treat the Jewish community with the greatest esteem, love, and respect, and to treasure it and to honor it for what God has done in and through it to bring about the incarnation and the redemption of the world through the Jewish Messiah. So, Bishop, I think that sort of leads us to to ask the question, uh, why does our theology about the identity of Israel matter? It matters most because we would not be in the position we are in without ethnic Israel of old. We are spiritual Semites, to sort of conclude where we began. And so it is our recognition of what God has done in salvation history 
which builds in our hearts the love that we have towards the Jewish community. Our default position is one of gratitude, of recognition for what God did in leading the world to Christ and beginning that process of the coming of of the Messiah through the old covenant people of God. And so foremost is, I think, a deep thanksgiving and recognition for what God has done in, in, through, in and through uh, ancient Israel. And in so doing, we should have a proper respect for it. Now, as St. Paul said, the Old Testament ceremonial law cannot save, and, and we cannot say that in the religion of Judaism it is, as it is practiced after Christ, that that is a means of salvation. That would be going too far. We cannot say that. There is no plan A and plan B. But what we can do is recognize that God has blessed the Jewish people. He continues to bless them. He loves them. And he commands us to love them with this eschatological hope. And so we recognize the gifts and the graces, the patriarchs and the promises that were made through the Jewish people. And we should take, therefore, a position of of deep satisfaction that God has brought us to where we are only because of what he has done for the Jewish people. And that should foster a unique relationship between Jews and Christians, which should be one of mutual cooperation and understanding, all the while the Christian realizing that what God has done in and through the ancient covenant and in and through Christ is for the Jewish people. We recall that in the ministry of Jesus himself, in the ministry of the apostles, they went first to the Jew, then to the Greek. And what is now offered in and through the mystical body of Christ, in and through the sphere of the Spirit, which is the body of Christ, the church, for the church is Christ, totus Christus, head and members together, that is to be offered to the Jewish people with a particular intensity, desire, and eagerness to see them drawn into the fullness of the kingdom of God. Well, Bishop, thank you so much for answering all these tough questions and for uh, combing through all of the uh, all of the data, because um, it sure is a lot. So we really appreciate having you on, as always. Thank you. It's It's a delight, a privilege, always a joy, always a blessing, always fun to be with you. And I so appreciate your hospitality, and I hope to be back with you soon. Absolutely. Well, you know, we love to have you on anytime you want to be on. I think legally we have to let you on anytime you want to come on since you are a bishop. (laughs) Canonically, it's required. But to end the show, after a a heady discussion about the uh, relationship between the church and Israel comes our one of our favorite segments. No uh, Creighton's Corner today because we have Creighton uh, with us, but um, what we're into. So, Bishop, what are you into these days? Well, when I'm not traveling for the diocese and visiting various places, I'm watching college football. My Duke Blue Devils ended a terrible season this year at, at three and nine. Uh, that is a perennial tradition in my family, a generational tradition of love for Duke University college football. I know that Duke is a basketball school. I'm reminded of that all the time. But in my family, there's been a great love for Duke football. Going back to my grandfather who went to the Rose Bowl, I think it was 1942, to see Duke actually win the national championship. And so I follow that very closely. Duke did not have a good end of the season. Our beloved coach, David Cutcliffe, just retired. 
after having such a bad season, but he'd been with us for several seasons. So I'm, I'm still watching college football as time allows and reading the autobiography of Marvin Stockwood, who was the Bishop of Southwark in the Church of England, a controversial figure, a guardian of Our Lady of Walsingham, a dynamic and popular Anglo-Catholic figure of the mid to late 20th century. And he was actually known most famously for confronting Monty Python on BBC over the movie The Life of Brian. If you haven't seen that interview between the bishop and John Cleese and one of his associates that's back from the 1970s, well worth a look. That's fascinating. Uh, Marvin Stockwood is a fascinating character, so I'm reading about him now. So between football and that and being with the family and my children and getting ready for Christmas, there's a lot going on. Well, if you're uh, if you're looking for someone to root for in football, I'm sure uh, NC State would love to have you uh, cheer for them and pray pray for them too. Uh, we <laughs> go Wolfpack. That's right, go Wolfpack. <laughs> Father Creighton, what are you into these days? Well, I think one of the things that I'm into is um, I I got a copy of Divine Worship Daily Office, um, which is published by the Catholic Truth Society. Um, I have it in the Commonwealth edition. And um, one of the things I like to do, uh, we talked about it before, is um, take the various texts that exist to say your daily offices and give them a try for like at least a year. I try to do the whole cycle just to see see what that's like. Uh, so I just finished up a year with the Liturgy of the Hours, um, which part of it I enjoyed. Some parts of it are not quite as nice uh, linguistically. Um, but I'm excited. Uh, this is the Ordinariate's office book um, in the UK. And so I'm excited to uh, to give it a use and see what see what I think about it so far. I mean, it's it's effectively kind of taking the bones of the Book of Common Prayer and uh, adding in office hymns, colics, things like that. So it's a bit fuller of an office. And there's um, obviously uh, like a breviary, there's um, other hours as well. Uh, so, so far I like it. So far I'm enjoying it. Um, maybe, and maybe, maybe sometimes we could get you to do a corner on the difference between uh, that the ordinary office book and the uh, Anglican office book or something like that. Yeah, that would be, that would be super fun. I'd love to, to kind of dive into that. I've enjoyed, uh, as, as somebody who, uh, you know, living in Australia, we pray for the queen, um, all the time. So it's nice to have that back in my life. Uh, I've missed it, uh, of late. So, um, I've enjoyed it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I've been into a band lately, um, a band called Me Without You, which is a band I've been listening to for a long time. And the reason I've been back into them is they're doing a farewell tour and I'm going to go see them on Monday night. So I've been getting in the mood by listening to a bunch of their music, but they are really an excellent uh, band lyrically. Um, Their uh, singer has some sort of advanced degree in literature. And so his uh, his lyrics are very poetic. Um, they've got one album in particular called It's All Crazy, It's All False, It's All a Dream or something like that. 
and uh, and it's it's very thoughtful of an album. So I'm going to see them on Monday. I'm very excited because they had initially announced their farewell tour for uh, 2020 in the summer. And so I bought my tickets as soon as I could. And then, of course, COVID-19 happened. So they delayed it and they delayed it to our son Rowan's due date. And so I kept I kept saying to Caroline, I'm never going to forgive Rowan if he makes me miss this farewell tour concert. Uh, but fortunately, they then canceled it again. And, and now they're coming and I can see them. So I don't have to hold a grudge against my son for his whole life. Um, so I look forward to, to seeing him <laughs> on Monday night in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Very good. Well, uh, listeners, if you like what we're doing, uh, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can rate and review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to share us with your friends. And you can also email us with feedback or show ideas at the sacramentalist at gmail.com. Father Creighton, would you close us in prayer today using the uh, prayer for the family of nations in the 1928 prayer book? Absolutely. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, guide, we beseech thee, the nations of the world into the way of justice and truth, and establish among them that peace, which is the fruit of righteousness, that they may become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.